Hello, this is Maurice Jackson. Before we present today's interview, I'd like to remind our listening audience that I'm a licensed broker to sell precious metals through Miles Franklin, where we have unlimited options to expand your precious metals portfolio. Stay tuned to the end of our interview for contact details, and I look forward to the opportunity to speak with you. Welcome to Proven Improbable, where we deliver mining insights and bullion sales in the form of physical delivery, offshore depositories, and private blockchain distributed ledger technology. Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Joining us for a conversation is Jordan Trimble, the president, director, and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources. Mr. Trimble, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on the program to discuss Sky Harbor Resources, a preeminent uranium explorer in Canada's Athabasca Basin. Sir, please introduce us to Sky Harbor Resources and the opportunity you present to the market. Absolutely. So Sky Harbor is a high grade uranium exploration and early stage development company uh, with six projects uh, scattered throughout the Athabasca Basin, which is in northern Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, For those of you not familiar with the Athabasca Basin, it's the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. Saskatchewan's ranked the number three mining jurisdiction in the world by the Fraser Institute. So really the best place in the world to be looking for and developing uranium deposits. So uh, we started the company about six years ago and what we saw was a contrarian opportunity uh, in the uranium space to go out uh, and and really build the foundation, uh, build a company up uh, that would uh, allow investors to get exposure to a couple of things. One, uh, an improving uranium market. So uh, as a uranium focused company, um, when the uranium price moves up, uh, we'll see our share price respond positively uh, post Fukushima. Again, when we started the company, uh, we saw an opportunity to go out and and basically build an asset base, put a team together uh, to take advantage of that. And then secondly, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, exploration, right? We are uh, an exploration company. We're out there looking for the next big high-grade deposit uh, in the Athabasca Basin. So if you look at recent discoveries in the Athabasca Basin, some notable companies like NextGen, like Fission, uh, Hathor previously, which was acquired by Rio Tinto uh, for $650 million. These companies went from small cap $20 to $30 million valuations uh, to hundreds of millions on the back of high-grade uranium discoveries in the basin. So at Sky Harbor, that is our main focus. Uh, we are an exploration discovery-driven company. We're out there looking for more high-grade uranium mineralization but in addition to that we act as a prospect generator as well so we do have a dual prong strategy uh, at the company so we have our main flagship project called the Moore Lake project uh, which is situated in the eastern part of the Athabasca Basin near uh, the infrastructure near mills and roads uh, and power Uh, that is where we're drilling that is where we're exploring and and that's where we feel we have the best shot of finding more high-grade mineralization it's important to note though that we do have high grade at the project already at what's called the maverick zone Uh, we've found and previous operators have found high-grade uranium mineralization we reported results as high as 21 percent u308 
over a meter and a half, uh, 6% uh, youth rate over six meters. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means and, and, and the value of that rock uh, later on in the interview. Uh, but nonetheless, we have a high grade zone there, a couple of zones there. We think there's a lot more to be found. Uh, so as I said, we also act as a prospect generator in addition to being a discovery story. Uh, we have five other projects uh, that we've acquired over the last five and a half, six years, uh, in addition to our flagship MORE. Uh, those five other projects, we look to option or joint venture out. We look to bring in partner companies, uh, strategic partners if we can, uh, and those partners come in and fund the exploration and development work at those projects. We also get some cash and stock payments typically as well, uh, and then they earn in, uh, and thereafter a joint venture partnership is formed. So that really allows us to have multiple irons in the fire. Uh, it allows us to have potentially exposure to multiple discoveries uh, and, and successful exploration programs. So that's unique to Sky Harbor where you have uh, as a shareholder exposure to uh, high grade discovery in the Athabasca Basin, uh, which we've seen with other notable companies has yielded significant returns for shareholders uh, in recent years. Uh, but we also act as a prospect generator to make sure that our secondary projects are being advanced as well as our flagship Moore Lake. The company employs a simple, efficient business model known as PTP. What is PTP? Yeah, so it's an acronym we like to use to simplify the real, the three real key pillars uh, of the business. It's the people, uh, and within that you have the management team, the board, you have the technical and geological team, you have uh, two notable strategic partners, one of which uh, is our largest shareholder, Denison Mines. They're listed in New York. They're one of the larger publicly traded uranium companies out there. Uh, their president and CEO, Dave Cates, is on our board, so a very close working relationship with them. And another strategic partner at the project level uh, is a company called Arano, which is France's largest uranium mining company uh, headquartered in Paris, state-run, big uh, multinational company. Uh, they're earning in 70% at one of our projects called the Preston Project. And, and to earn up to 70%, they have to spend $8 million, the bulk of which being spent in exploration and development activities over a six-year period. And then last but not least, within the people uh, involved in the company, running the company, uh, and and uh, helping us grow this company are our shareholders, right? Uh, and uh, there's some notable large shareholders, which we'll get to later on in the interview. Uh, the next letter stands for timing, and timing has everything to do with where we're at in the uranium cycle, where we're at in the uranium market right now. And as I said earlier, we started this company uh, in a depressed uranium market, uh, we saw an opportunity to go in there and acquire projects at attractive valuations uh, and, and build a project portfolio, which we've been doing over the last five and a half, six years. Uh, we're starting to see a recovery. We're starting to see the price of uranium moving up. Uh, it appeared to have bottomed out in late 2016, uh, traded down to $17.75, uh, which is one of the lowest uh, it's traded at, and that's on a per pound basis. It's one of the lowest it's traded at uh, in inflation adjusted terms ever. Uh, and it's since then it's been ticking up. Uh, it's been somewhat volatile, but we've seen it 
trade in between the low 20s and high 20s, uh, but clearly the trend has reversed. So timing with the uranium market, I think, especially right now, uh, is, is, is very important and uh, a key talking point for us as a uranium company. And then last but not least, uh, the projects, right? The asset base. And as I just uh, talked about earlier, we have two strategies. One, uh, we're focused on drilling and advancing our flagship more project. Uh, you'll see a news flow out of that over the coming years. Uh, we just announced uh, recent drill results from a, a winter spring program and planning an upcoming summer program. Uh, and, uh, and then secondly, prospect generation at the other properties, bringing in partner companies to fund and advance those projects so that we can focus our time, money and effort at our flagship more project. Project. With regards to PTP, let's begin with the letter T as in Tango. Jordan, I believe it's paramount for audience members to have a full comprehension on the supply and demand fundamentals of uranium to truly appreciate the opportunity that Sky Harbor Resources presents to the market. Mr. Trimble, what is the current and future demand for energy and how does uranium fit into this narrative? Yeah, so why don't we start uh, at, a, at a very high level here um, with what uranium is used for. Uh, it is predominantly used for nuclear power uh, in nuclear power plants. Um, globally right now, um, you are seeing uh, a number of countries leading the charge, in particular in the developing world, specifically China, India, um, other parts of, uh, of the developing world that are, are pushing forward uh, their nuclear power plant agendas. And just getting back to nuclear, so nuclear energy provides baseload CO2 emissions-free, low-cost energy, right? Uh, so it really is the only source of 24-7 uh, clean electricity generates electricity over 90% capacity uh, uh, factor, uh, unlike renewables, right? You need the wind blowing, you need the sun shining for wind and solar, you need rivers, you need uh, for, for hydro. So nuclear can generate clean electricity 24 seven. It also provides grid and price stability and anchors local community with jobs and a tax base. So it's a very important part of the global energy mix. It actually accounts for about 11% of global electricity generation. In the United States, it's about 20%, one in five homes. Uh, and if you look at countries like France, for example, France gets over 70% of its electricity from nuclear. So it's a very impart, uh, important part of the global energy mix. It, it is unmatched electricity generation in a megawatt per square kilometer basis. If you look at the largest offshore wind farm in the world in the Walney Sea, it generates less than two megawatts per square kilometer, whereas the largest nuclear power plant in the world generates just under 2,000 megawatts per square kilometer. So it's also important to note that you can get a lot of a clean electricity uh, in a very small area. So nuclear, uh, as it pertains to the global energy mix, important, but it's also going to be very important going forward, combating climate change, right? So if you look at the Paris Climate Agreement from a few years back, trying to limit the rise in global temperatures uh, to two degrees by the end of the century, uh, if you run the models, nuclear has to play an important role. You have some major and well-known 
uh, investors and thought leaders globally uh, that are pro-nuclear, in particular a couple well-known uh, people in the U.S., including uh, Bill Gates and Peter Thiel. These are perfect examples of uh, individuals, thought leaders, uh, successful entrepreneurs that have done their research and understand the importance of nuclear as a part of a clean energy uh, a grid and uh, generation going forward. Line is you have global demand for electricity expected to grow by almost 80% by 2030, a big part of that being the advent of electric vehicles. Uh, and this is where uranium as the fuel for nuclear power uh, is going to play a very important role. We need to find more of it. We need to see more investment in projects uh, going forward uh, in new mines that can uh, deliver that uranium, that fuel to the next wave of, of clean nuclear reactors. Multi-layered question. How many operable reactors are there in the world? How many are under construction? And how many more are being planned and or proposed? It's a great question. So currently you have 447 operable reactors globally. You have 56 reactors under construction and you have about another 450 reactors ordered, planned and proposed. And as I mentioned earlier, the growth centers for nuclear are in the developing world where you have billions of people coming up into new middle classes. Uh, and these are the places uh, that need a lot of clean electricity. They need baseload power, China, India, uh, even parts of Africa that are looking to build nuclear power plants. One good example also is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is planning on developing uh, about 16 nuclear reactors, $100 billion that they're planning to invest in nuclear. And that's quite interesting, given that it's the oil and the solar capital of the world. So that says something about nuclear going forward. So uh, you see a, a pretty steady growth in, in nuclear reactors uh, and uranium demand going forward. Uh, just to give you some numbers there, uh, 2019, we're expecting over 196 million pounds uh, of demand of uranium. Uh, and uh, over the last several years, we've seen major supply curtailments, project deferrals and mine closures. So you've seen in 2016 where the supply, uh, primary mine supply amounted to about 163 million pounds of uranium. That's fallen to less than 138 million pounds here. Uh, and we expect that that number could uh, continue to decrease uh, with new projects uh, that are being uh, deferred projects that have been uh, mines that have been producing uranium that are coming to the end of their mine lives and simply under investment in new projects. So there is a, a major supply deficit looming here uh, with primary mine supply well below uh, the average uh, consumption of uranium. That supply deficit has had to be met by secondary supply. So we've been eating into inventories and secondary supplies to meet the annual demand and annual reactor requirements. What does the current cost of capital for uranium producers versus the current spot price suggest? Yeah, so this is a big talking point uh, right now where you have the current spot price at about just under $25 a pound. Um, the contract, long-term contract price is about $32 a pound. The average all-in cost 
globally is between 40 to 45 dollars a pound and the price needed to incentivize new production to come online new builds new project development uh, a lot of analysts are estimating that between 50 to 60 dollars a pound so you are trading at a significant discount to the average all-in cost of production as well as the price needed to incentivize new development and that's where it gets exciting in terms of the potential upside we've seen the price of this commodity over a 50 60 year period go through these boom and bust periods it's a very cyclical commodity uh, we've seen it uh, go through long periods uh, of low prices uh, to, and it's like a coiled spring it goes through these long bear markets and then we see the supply side respond which is what we're seeing right now we see demand continuing to grow and all of a sudden we see the price shoot up and we saw this a couple times in the last 15 years uh, in 2006 2007 we saw the price move from 15 20 dollars a pound in the early 2000s to a high of over 130 dollars a pound and needless to say uranium equities did very well during that period of time a lot of money was made and then again in 2000 after 2008 the price got down to $40 a pound and we saw it almost double back up to $70 a pound in 2011 right before the Fukushima accident happened so now we're back down to $24 $25 a pound uh, and I think we're gearing up for a big move over the coming years with uranium, the spot price is only part of the story. What gets overlooked in the discussion is the contract price. Where is the supply going to come from and at what cost? Yeah, the market really, you see two prices for it. The spot price, uh, which again is in the mid-20s, uh, seems to be what equity market participants look at. But the reality of it is most uranium historically has traded through these long-term contracts. And the, and the current contract, long-term contract price is about $32 a pound. And uh, what, we'll, what we see happen in this sector is the largest buyer of uranium being utility companies, nuclear utility companies globally, they typically get their uranium through these long-term contracts with mining companies. And so you don't see it like the spot market moving as much on a daily basis. Uh, you typically see it move, uh, it's a little stickier uh, and it's based off of recent contract prices. But that's really the price uh, that, again, most of the material is traded at, is bought at. So that's really the price uh, that needs to be looked at. Nonetheless, people still focus in on the spot price. We have seen quite a bit of spot market activity in the last several years. And I think this is a bullish indicator. In 2018, we saw over 88 million pounds transacted on the spot market, which is one of the highest, uh, I believe the highest uh, level of spot market activity and volume ever. So when we talk about the price of uranium, we say we look at 2016 in the spot market as a bottom being put in. We are now seeing the volume uh, indicate, uh, along with the rising price, indicate a real recovery underway. And I think it's all gearing up for a breakout. And there's a couple of key catalysts on the near-term horizon uh, that we'll talk about, um, but this is all bullish for the price. Uh, and it is, again, important to distinguish the, the contract long-term price and the spot price. Section 232 in the United States factor into this discussion. That's a great question and uh, I'll get to that, but just before I do, and this ties in with that question uh, as well, I'd like to just talk briefly about what I think will be the biggest catalyst for the price, both the 
in the spot and the contract price going forward uh, is a new contracting cycle. And we've seen this in the past 2006, 2007, uh, 2009 to 2011. What really drove the price uh, were new long-term contracts, big contracts being signed between the mining companies and the utility companies. And if you look at the next five to 10 years, there are a lot of uncovered requirements. That means uncovered fuel requirements at the current operating nuclear reactors. Uh, so that's current contracts that will be expiring and have to either be renegotiated or have to, that material will then have to be bought somewhere else. So if you look at the numbers here, about 20% of demand for 2021, 2022 is uncovered, 50% by 2025, and almost two-thirds by 2030. Uh, and the U.S. nuclear utilities um, in the next several years, their uncovered requirements go up quite a bit. So they're going to have to come back to the market here shortly. And that's important when we talk about this section 232. So for those that aren't familiar with section 232, uh, what it is is it was a petition uh, and a group of U.S. nuclear uh, or uranium mining companies that lobbied the Department of Commerce to open up a investigation into where the U.S. is importing its uranium from and the effects of that on the domestic uranium mining industry. So just a couple of uh, stats here. As I said, nuclear power accounts for about 20% of uh, electricity in the United States. It's, a, it's the majority of clean electricity that's generated in the United States. But a lot of people don't know this. The U.S. actually has to import over 95% of its annual uranium demand now. And that is uh, what they deem to be a, a national security issue, especially given that 40% of that comes from three, as they call them, adversarial nations, Kazakhstan, Russia, and Uzbekistan. Uh, the U.S. only produces a very small amount of uranium domestically. In fact, in uh, 2019, it's expected to be less uh, than 1 million pounds. They consume almost 50 million pounds with the nuclear reactor fleet. And you've got to remember, the U.S. is still the largest consumer of uranium. They have the largest uh, nuclear reactor fleet. So it's, it's, the, uh, it's a big part of annual demand, yet they are reliant on foreign supply in particular from those three nations to get it. So Section 232 investigation looked into this. A report uh, uh, announcing and reporting on the final findings of that investigation have been submitted uh, as of mid-April and there's a 90-day review period which is currently underway which ends in the middle of July uh, in which the Trump administration will review this investigation and the report and they will come out with a ruling. Now what this has created and I don't think that this was uh, the intention of it is it's created a bit of a lull. It's created uncertainty in the market. U.S. nuclear utilities don't know what the findings are and don't know what the ruling is going to be. What they're pushing for, uh, and this was a part of the investigation, is pushing for a 25% quota system. So U.S. nuclear utilities having to buy 25% of their uranium requirements from domestic sources of uranium. Now, the issue there is that the U.S., as I said, 
is not producing anywhere near that amount right now. For them to get to that level of about 12 to 13 million pounds, up from less than 1 million pounds currently, it's going to take probably five to seven years, and you're going to need to see a much, much higher uranium price, probably close to a doubling of where the spot price is right now. So you need to see a two-tiered price system. So even if that 25% quota is implemented, it's going to take a while to get there. And you're going to need to see a much higher price uh, paid because U.S. producers can't make a profit at the current uh, spot price. Uh, and so what I think you'll see happen in the, in the short period of time right after 232, I think you could see uh, a number of things, uh, positive things happen in the space. One, it'll take the uncertainty away from the utility companies, uh, this cloud that's been hanging over uh, the, the whole sector that's put downward pressure, I believe, on the price recently. You will now see, I think, utility companies, especially in the U.S., right, uh, come back to the market. As we talked about earlier, there's a lot of uncovered requirements uh, in the next few years. So they'll have to come back to the market, but they'll have some clarity on where they have to get their uranium from. So you'll see uh, these utilities coming back, they have not been contracting. There's been very little contracting uh, over the last few years, and in particular in the last year uh, where you've had this, uh, again, this uncertainty surrounding 232. So I think you'll see utilities, the main buyer coming back, in particular the largest buyer being U.S. nuclear utilities. That, I think, will spur a price rally uh, in, the, in the coming months. Uh, but also, it, uh, it could benefit Canadian companies and Australian companies, allies of the U.S., because where is the U.S. going to get uh, supply of uranium over the next few years if mining companies cannot supply what they need to to meet that quota? It's likely that U.S. nuclear utilities will look north to Canada, and that will benefit Canadian uranium companies. Globally, what's going on on the demand side for uranium? Yeah, so we've talked about what's happening in the United States. That's really dominated headlines with 232, and it'll be good to have that out of the way. But globally, nuclear is growing, as I said, in the developing world. China is really leading the charge, currently 45 operating reactors, 13 under construction, and over 200 more planned and ordered. They're planning to triple their nuclear capacity by 2030. Air quality is a big problem in China. Millions of people a year dying from poor air quality, pollution generated from coal plants, from gas and oil plants. So that's where nuclear and nuclear power comes in. Uh, and if you look at what China's been doing over the last five or six year, years, they've made strategic investments into uranium companies, and in particular, into Athabasca Alaska Basin high-grade uranium companies. In 2015, CGN invested $82 million into fission uranium, becoming the largest shareholder, uh, CGN being one of China's largest nuclear utility companies. And then also in 2016 and 2017, CEF Holdings, Li Kai-shing, has invested close to $200 million into next-gen energy. So you are seeing Chinese money coming into Canadian Athabasca Basin stories. And then if we move over to India, again, another growth center for nuclear power, 22 reactors operating, seven under construction, 42 reactors planned and proposed. Uh, Canada and India recently announced a $350 million deal uh, whereby Cameco, the largest uh, 
publicly traded uranium mining company based here in Canada, uh, $350 million deal to supply India uh, with uh, uranium and nuclear fuel over a five-year period. And more recently, India has just approved the construction of 12 new nuclear reactors. So China and India really leading the charge uh, on new nuclear reactors. As I said, new nuclear reactors also being built in the Middle East, uh, in Russia, in other parts of the developing world. And then last but not least, Japan. And, you know, Japan really has been the elephant in the room. We all know what happened at Fukushima. Japan was large, one of the largest consumers of the uranium, had one of the largest nuclear power plant fleets. They shut almost all of those down after Fukushima. We have started to see an acceleration in Japanese nuclear restarts. We now have nine reactors up and running, up from three in 2016. There is a uh, 26 reactor restart applications uh, in Japan uh, that the NRA is looking at. And last but not least, you have a uh, leading uh, government there, the Abe administration, uh, that has stated they are pro-nuclear. Uh, they want to bring nuclear back up to over 20% of Japan's electricity generation by 2030. So they'll need about 30 reactors online to do that up from the current nine. Press some of the concerns on the supply side. Yeah, so uh, this is really what has started this initial recovery is we've seen the supply side respond to the low price environment we've been in. And it really started in 2016 and 2017. Uh, you had Cameco shut down a few of its mines up. Uh, uh, Rano, uh, previously known as Arriva, shut down some of its production. And then the big news came in 2017 when Kazataprom, which is Kazakhstan's state-run uranium mining company, Kazakhstan's the largest producer of uranium globally, uh, they announced uh, initial production cuts uh, at some of their mines. And it's important to note that these are some of the lower cost mines in the world. We're not talking about higher cost marginal production being shut down because of a low uranium price. We're talking about lower cost producers shutting down production. So that trade wave of curtailment and reduced production from several mining companies. Cameco followed suit by shutting down the world's largest uranium mine at MacArthur River. Uh, this accounts for about 12% of global annual production. It simply is more profitable right now for Cameco to buy material in the spot market in the mid-20s uh, and then sell it into their higher priced longer term contracts than it is to be producing from the highest grade uranium mine in the world at MacArthur River. So that production has been shut down. It's going to take time for that to come back online. They're going to need to see a much higher uranium price. So we've seen a number of notable um, production curtailment uh, and uh, we've also seen projects deferred and we're now starting to see some big projects, some bigger mines that are coming to the end of their mine lives. So we're seeing uh, a few in Africa, Rossing being one. Uh, we're seeing a few, Agdella, uh, a few in Australia as well uh, that are simply coming to the end of their mine lives. So millions of pounds uh, that will be coming offline over the coming years as well. So again, the supply side has uh, is starting to respond. I think that's what started this recovery that we're in. Uh, and I think you'll see that continue. And then we've also now seen some funds, some new 
uh, financial buyers uh, over the last couple of years that have come in. They've recognized this structural mispricing in the Iranian market. And most notably, about a year ago, uh, a group out of London called Yellow Cake, which uh, is listed uh, in London, raised uh, 200, over $200 million to buy uh, just over 8 million pounds of uranium directly from Kazataprom, effectively taking that material out of the spot market, uh, which has strengthened the market. Now, they have an option to raise and buy $100 million worth of uranium each year for the next nine years. So you've seen new funds new financial buyers coming into the market to take advantage of this structural mispricing. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, again, I talked about Cameco shutting down MacArthur River. Well, Cameco still has to deliver into these long-term contracts that they have. And as I said, it's more profitable for them right now to buy in the spot market at the low price in the mid-20s and then sell into those contracts. Now, 2018 was the first year they started doing this. They drove the price, helped drive the price. This time last year from the low mid-20s to the high 20s, we saw the equities, the, the uranium mining companies uh, move up with that. We've seen that kind of stall out and pull back a little bit. And a big reason for that is that your uh, Cameco has been less active in the spot market recently. I think we will see them coming back in uh, in a more meaningful way between now and the end of the year. They, we know that they have to buy it millions more pounds before year end to deliver into their contracts. So I think that's going to be yet another big near-term catalyst that will drive a higher price. Boy, what an opportunity we have before us in uranium. Let's discuss the value proposition before us in Sky Harbor Resources. Now, Sky Harbor is an exploration company and prospect generator in the Athabasca Basin. Strategically, why did the company invest most of its project portfolio in the Athabasca Basin? A couple of reasons that we were interested in building a project portfolio in the Athabasca Basin. One will start with the fact that it is the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. It's unparalleled. Uh, the average grade in the Athabasca Basin is about 2% U308, uh, whereas the global average is about 0.1% U308. So uh, a combination of unique geological uh, qualities and characteristics that create the environment for these super rich uranium deposits. And as an exploration and early stage development company, that's exciting for us because even in a low uranium price environment as we've been in, you can still generate significant returns for shareholders uh, through new high-grade discoveries. And perfect examples of that, as I mentioned earlier, are NextGen, Fission, Hathor, uh, Denison at the Griffin deposit recently and previously at Phoenix. Uh, there's been a number of notable high-grade discoveries in the last 10 years in particular. And secondly, when we started the company, we saw an opportunity to go in to projects, acquire projects in the base and go into these projects with a new look, using some new techniques, some new ideas, some new methodologies uh, that have been used effectively to make these recent high-grade discoveries. So some new geophysical techniques, understanding the geology, the geochemistry better, using some new drilling techniques. And then a big one has actually been looking for uranium deposits in what's called the basement rock. So I won't get too in the weeds on the geological lingo, uh, but uh, there, are there are a couple types of deposits in the basin. You have the sedimentary sandstone above, and then below that you have what's called the basement rock. And the contact between these two types of rock 
is what's called the unconformity. So you typically find the uranium deposits uh, above in the sandstone at the unconformity or in the basement rock. And more recently, exploration and drilling has been focused on finding these new high-grade deposits in the underlying basement rock. That's where NextGen's deposit is. That's where Fission's deposit is. Uh, and there's a lot of potential in the basin on projects that have high-grade uranium in the sandstone or at the unconformity, uh, but haven't been properly tested for the feeder zones, the source of that high-grade mineralization in the underlying basement rock. And that is one of the key themes that we're going after key strategies that we're employing at our flagship project right now. Uh, we are we know we have high grade at the unconformity and in the sandstone, but very little historical drilling uh, in the underlying basement rock. And just recently, we've started hitting our first uh, high grade zones of mineralization uh, in the underlying basement rock, which is quite exciting for the company. Yeah, I like the business acumen and the use of optionality. Sky Harbor has six projects in the Athabasca encompassing over 200,000 hectares that have approximately 80 million worth of historical exploration and was purchased at only four and a half million. Let's discuss the exploration projects first and then cover the project generator second. Sky Harbor has two deposits. Let's go to the Moore Lake flagship project. What makes Sky Harbor Resources confident that you have the next big great discovery here? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll just start with a, a quick overview of the project base before getting into a deeper dive on, on the specific project. So six projects, uh, about half a million acres worth of land uh, scattered throughout the Athabasca Basin, both on the east and the west side of the Athabasca Basin. Um, the flagship being our Moore project, that's where we're drilling, that's where we're exploring. Uh, but we also have the five other projects where we are looking to bring partner companies in as a part of uh, as a part of our prospect generator model. Now, as far as valuations concerned, uh, we've acquired these projects at really pennies on the dollar, uh, as you mentioned, about four and a half million uh, in stock cash uh, and uh, over a period of the last five and a half, six years. Now, to shed some light on valuations, these projects have had over 80 million in historical exploration and development work on them. At one point in time, two of the projects, Moore Lake and Falcon Point, were in a company that was valued at over $350 million in the previous uranium boom in 2006-2007. So there's a strong re-rating potential with the current asset base in the company right now. If you go and look at our flagship project, Moore Lake, as I mentioned, this is uh, really what is going to be providing us and our shareholders with the most catalyst coming up. We own 100% of it. Uh, and this is the most advanced stage project of uh, all of them. There's a high-grade zone there called the Maverick Zone. There's actually several high-grade lenses. And as I said uh, previously, we're just starting to drill a little bit deeper, looking for the source of that high-grade mineralization uh, in the basement rock. But in addition to the Maverick Zone, which is hosted on a four-kilometer corridor, uh, so it's only a few hundred meters uh, long where this Maverick Zone uh, or multiple lenses is in, uh, there's uh, other zones along Strike uh, that have yet to be fully drill tested and about two kilometers 
of that four kilometer long corridor has yet to be properly drill tested as well, systematically drill tested. So there's still a lot of room to move along strike. And as I said, also at depth in the basement rocks. Uh, we do have about a dozen other regional targets on the property and our most recent round of drilling, we actually made a new discovery about seven kilometers away from the Maverick zone at what's called the Otter Zone. And this is a brand new uh, zone that we just finished a couple drill holes at and we hit in one of the holes uranium mineralization. So there will be some follow-up work regionally as well as at the Maverick Zone and the Maverick Corridor in our upcoming drill programs. Recent success at the Maverick Zone uh, some of our recent drill holes returning very high-grade mineralization, up to 21% U3A over a meter and a half. And just to uh, put some perspective on that, uh, 1% U308 is equivalent to about 20 grams per ton of gold, 1400 grams per ton of silver, almost 14% copper. So that just gives you an idea of how valuable that mineralization is on a per ton basis. To your second deposit, Falcon Point, which has a 43101 published in 2015 demonstrating high grade in the inferred category. Why are uranium investors excited about this project? Yeah, so Falcon Point is a very important project in our portfolio. It has an NI43101 inferred resource, uh, both uranium and thorium credit as well. We own 100% of it. Now, Falcon Point plays in with our prospect generator strategy. We are currently looking to bring partner companies in there where we can option off uh, or joint venture off a part of the property. We have the deposit area on the south end of the project, but interestingly, we have a very high grade surface showing that runs up to 68% U308 at surface. Uh, we have plans uh, or plans to bring in a partner company that can then go and further test that high-grade surface showing uh, we, some more geophysics that can be done there and then ultimately look to drill test that. So uh, a very important part of our portfolio uh, with the NI43101 uh, resource on the south end, high-grade surface showing uh, at the, uh, the north end of the property. Uh, and again, that ties in with our broader prospect generator strategy. And just talking a little bit more about that, our Preston project and our East Preston project are perfect examples of where we've actually brought in partner companies to fund the exploration and development work going forward, starting with a strategic partner in Arano. Uh, Arano, as I mentioned, is France's largest uranium mining and uh, fuel processing company. Uh, it is based in uh, Paris. They have mines uh, and projects all over the world. They have a big geological team. They know the basin quite well. So we get to leverage that technical expertise as they fund the exploration and work at our Preston project. The deal is structured as such. They can earn up to 70% of the property by spending a total of $8 million over a six-year period. They're about halfway through that. $7.3 million of that in exploration, $700,000 in cash payments. At that point, a joint venture partnership will be formed, and uh, Arano will become uh, the majority owner of the project. And so they, this year, have a $2.2 million budget. They've just completed a winter-spring drill program with results uh, to follow. They are planning for additional exploration and drilling programs going forward. Uh, so that's uh, an important part of our story. And then on the 
just beside that project on a property we have called the East Preston Project. We structured a similar deal with a company called Azincourt. And Azincourt can earn up to 70% as well by spending just under $4 million in exploration and cash payments. Uh, they have $1.4 million that needs to be spent by March of, 20, uh, of 2020 uh, and then a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash payments that come in as well. They've just announced recent drill results, the first drill program that they've carried out at East Preston, seeing all the right things um, and they are planning for a much larger program uh, soon. Uh, they will get the drill rig back there uh, to, uh, to drill over a dozen uh, undrilled targets that they have and follow up on the first few holes that they drilled earlier this year. Uh, so collectively, those two companies, uh, it's a big spend over a six-year period, about $11.5 million in project consideration, 9.8 of that combined in exploration, and $1.7 million in cash payments, and, and those companies can earn up to 70%. The ultimate goal for Sky Harbor Resources to build a mine or arbitrage? Ultimate, my history and my management team and board of directors, uh, we have a history of selling companies, selling projects. That is the ultimate goal here. We would like a larger company to come in and buy the projects and or buy the company, uh, looking for an ultimate acquisition of the company uh, upon making uh, new discoveries and advancing the projects and hopefully we see that in a rising uranium market and that will help uh, get us uh, a much higher valuation. Good. Let's address the bad. What can go wrong and what is your action plan to mitigate that wrong? So I think one of the things that does keep me up at night is, uh, you know, we are in the business of exploration. It's high risk, high potential return. So you can't guarantee exploration or drilling success. Uh, what we do, though, uh, as I mentioned, is we are using some innovative techniques. We are going through all of the historic and have gone through all the historical data and adding the recent data from all the work that we've done to really give us and our shareholders the best shot the best potential being a part of a new big discovery. And so that to us is a big part of what we do on a daily basis when we go out there uh, and we carry out these drill programs or our partner companies carry out these drill programs and exploration programs. We wanna know we have the best target selected. And there's a lot more tools at our disposal, geophysical techniques, uh, certain types of drilling, uh, directional drilling, more targeted drilling, uh, some uh, new geochemical analysis and understanding that we've done uh, at our flagship more project uh, that really give us the best chance at, at finding additional zones of high-grade mineralization. So you can never guarantee exploration success, but you can certainly increase your odds of finding more. Switching gears, let's discuss the people responsible for increasing shareholder value. Mr. Trimble, please introduce us to your board of directors. Yeah, so getting back to the acronym PTP, this is the first P, and this could be one of the more important parts of the business, the people running it, uh, the strategic partners, 
uh, and as I said, uh, the larger shareholders. So uh, I teamed up with my head geologist, uh, a, a gentleman named Rick Kazmersky. Uh, we like to call him Radioactive Rick. Uh, he's been working in the Athabasca Basin for over 40 years. Uh, he's made multiple high-grade uranium discoveries in the basin. He was previously the exploration manager at Cameco, uh, and then he left Cameco and started his own company, JNR, in the late 90s, early 2000s. He had success there. He took the company uh, from a five, four or five million dollar valuation was trading at over 300 million in 2006, 2007. He ultimately sold the company to Denison Mines. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Denison is a strategic partner of ours. They're our largest uh, shareholder. And Dave Cates, who's the president and CEO of Denison Mines, is on our board of directors. Uh, so Dave is an important part of the team. Again, a very close working relationship with Denison uh, and uh, and Dave's team there. And then the chairman uh, of the company, who I've worked with uh, for uh, a number of years now, Jim Pettit. Uh, Jim has over 30 years of experience uh, in the industry. Uh, previously, he ran a gold company called Bayfield Ventures. Uh, that's where I started my career uh, in the industry, was working with Jim at Bayfield. Uh, and what we did at Bayfield was we made a high-grade gold discovery uh, in Ontario in 2010. Um, we had success there, and then ultimately the company was acquired by New Gold in 2014 and 2014, uh, 2013 and 2014. And that's when I started Sky Harbor. So Jim uh, is the chairman. Him and I work together here in Vancouver. My geological team, uh, led by Rick, uh, is in Saskatoon. And then some other notable names uh, on the board and advisory board: uh, Paul Matizic, a strategic advisor, very well-known uh, individual in the mining space. Uh, he's built and sold a number of companies in the last 12 years, most recently Lithium X, uh, as well as Gold Rock Mines. Uh, but his biggest win was a company called Energy Metals Corp, which he started in 2004 at a $10 million valuation and sold it three years later for $1.8 billion to Uranium One. So Paul knows a thing or two about building companies, about selling these companies, uh, an important advisor to our team. And then we also have Kowski who runs corporate development. He's a 10-year veteran, uh, worked as a stockbroker, uh, and uh, as well worked at a few larger banks, including RBC and Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi. Uh, and then Christine McKechnie, who's uh, a consulting geologist, one of the head uh, field geologist for us. Uh, she actually wrote her thesis on the deposit that we have at the Falcon Point project. So she knows our project base well. She previously worked at Eagle Point Uranium Mine uh, in the basin with Cameco. Uh, Dave Villard, who works directly with Rick, uh, a ge one of our geologists as well. Uh, Nick Finler, who handles the investor relations. Uh, and then Don Houston, who's uh, an industry veteran as well and a director of the company. So a very well-rounded team um, that bring capital markets experience um, and uh, management experience as well as a geological and technical team with focused expertise on uranium exploration in the basin. It's important to have people that know how to find specific types of deposits and we have that with Rick, Christine and Dave uh, leading the charge uh, on the properties. Who is Jordan Trimble and what makes him qualified for the task at hand? 
Yeah, so I started the company, uh, like I said, about six years ago. I saw an opportunity uh, to build a uranium company to ride this next wave up, uh, specifically high-grade uranium exploration in the Athabasca Basin. Uh, as I said, uh, previously, I was working at a gold company with Jim called Bayfield Ventures. We had exploration success and were ultimately acquired by a larger gold mining company. Uh, again, this is what we're trying to accomplish here at Sky Harbor. I come from more of a uh, entrepreneurial background. I've worked with several companies uh, in the past, uh, specializing in corporate finance and strategy, shareholder communications, deal structuring, capital raising, and, and, and management. Uh, and I'm a CFA charter holder. I currently serve as a director uh, on the board of the CFA Society Vancouver. Um, been working in the industry for about 10 years now. Uh, so again, looking to have success here uh, with Sky Harbor uh, in the field, on our projects, with our partners, uh, but also in the backdrop of a rising uranium market. Now, let me pause here. Please share your capital structure. So Sky Harbor has about 64 million shares issued and outstanding. We trade uh, in on the TSX Venture at about 33, 34 cents Canadian, so about $21 million Canadian market cap, still small cap with a lot of room to move. We do have a US OTCQB listing, SYHBF in the US, and the ticker symbol in Canada on the TSX Venture is SYH. Uh, the structure is very well structured company, as I said, with 64 million shares issued and outstanding. The public float on that, I would say, is about 50% of that. And just to cover some of the notable and strategic shareholders we have, management and insiders, uh, we own a large position in the company. We believe in what we're doing. Denison Mines is our largest strategic shareholder. Marin Catuza and the KCR Fund. Marin's been a cornerstone investor really from day one. Uh, him and his fund are uh, two of our larger shareholders. Uh, OTP Fund Management, which is uh, OTP Bank, the largest bank in Hungary. Uh, they have a resource fund, which uh, is a large shareholder of the company. Extract Capital uh, out of New York and Toronto. Sachem Cove Partners, run by Mike Alkin, uh, is a new uranium fund that's taken a large position in the company. And then a couple of other notable names, uh, Paul Matizic, who's a strategic advisor, Jeff Phillips uh, uh, down in California, a very large large shareholders uh, of the company. Laird question. What is the next unanswered question for Sky Harbor Resources? When can we expect a response and what determines success? So the biggest one has to do with our exploration and drilling, right? So we just announced uh, results from our winter uh, winter and spring program. You can see uh, those results again. Uh, the new zone, East Maverick zone, our first drill hole into it. We've intersected high-grade uranium in the basement rock. So a big success for us there. Also, we found uh, new zones of uranium mineralization regionally, new discoveries. So we want to follow up on all of this with our upcoming summer program, uh, which will commence in the coming months. Uh, we uh, will have news flow from that through uh, the summer and into the fall. Uh, drilling and exploration really is the main catalyst for Sky Harbor. Again, you look at recent discovery stories like NextGen and Fission uh, and Hathor previously, uh, this is really what drives a higher share price uh, with exploration and drilling success. Uh, but secondly, 
as a uranium company, we do offer exposure to the underlying commodity. And as I've highlighted in this interview, there's some notable upcoming catalysts in the near term. Again, the resolution of Section 232, chemical spot market purchasing, supply cuts, uh, and a supply side response uh, that's, I think, helping to drive higher uranium prices. Uh, we will benefit from a rising uranium price. Uh, it's important to note that there's very few uranium companies left. We've seen a major contraction in the industry and the combined market caps of all uranium companies is less than 15 billion Canadian. So we've seen a major contraction from hundreds of uranium publicly listed companies uh, back in 2006, 2007 to really less than 40 active companies. So what that means is that when money comes back into the space and is looking to get investment exposure to the space, it only has a few names to go to. And Sky Harbor is one of the few companies that's uh, stuck around, uh, that's been able to take advantage of this of these depressed market conditions. And will be one of the first companies to benefit as we see this continued recovery and I think breakout uh, in the next uh, year or two with your with uranium price last question what did I forget to ask hmm. everything uh, again getting back to the people the timing the projects we have the right team in place uh, to execute on our business plan and our dual prong strategy going forward uh, the right management team technical geological team and strategic partners in Denison and Arano timing with the uranium market I think that's vital right now we're seeing a recovery play out I think we'll see continued momentum especially as uh, new longer term contracts are signed uh, as 232 comes to a head uh, and last but not least you know the, the asset base the projects right uh, we're exploring them we're advancing them uh, these projects were worth a, a lot of money in a previous uh, company back in 2006 2007 I think there's strong re-rating potential. And Sky Harbor offers investors exposure, uh, again, not only to high-grade discovery potential at our project base and with our partner companies, uh, but also to a rising uranium price. Mr. Trimble, for someone listening that wants to get more information about Sky Harbor Resources, please share the website address. Yeah, so the website is www.skyharborltd.com. Dot com. Uh, we have lots of information up on the website, include, including the corporate presentation, uh, news releases, uh, interviews, uh, anything that, uh, that you need uh, information-wise should be up there. Uh, and if not, uh, our contact information is on the website as well. For direct inquiries, contact Nick Findler at 604-639-3850. That number again is 604-639-3850. Or you may email nfindler at skyharborltd.com. Sky Harbor Resources trades on the TSXV symbol SYH and on the OTCQB symbol SYHBF. Sky Harbor Resources is a sponsor of Proven and Probable. Finally, please visit Proven. And as a reminder, I'm a licensed broker for Miles Franklin Precious Metals Investments, where we provide unlimited options to expand your precious metals portfolio from physical delivery, offshore depositories, precious metal IRAs, and private blockchain distributed ledger technology. Call me directly at 855-505-1900. That number again is 855-505-1900. Or you may email Maurice at milesfranklin.com.
www.skyharborresources.com. Jordan Trimble of Sky Harbor Resources, thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. The information presented on Proven and Probable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor. 